Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. How does the the gospel apply in, in, in this in this book? Or I'm I'm thinking of like your two line illustration. How do you how do you see that? Well, it's a great thanks for bringing it up. I wasn't even going to bring it up in the talk, but the, the I think so much of the achievement, cause, and pleasure are the single line, right? Especially achievement and cause, you can really see. Uh, being the single line, maybe so not. Just, ex- just explain. We 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 in this podcast we often contrast a difference between a single line way of living the Christian life and a double line cr- way of living the Christian life. So explain that re- super quick. Yeah. So the the single line is it's a simple graph where holiness is the vertical axis and time is the horizontal axis, and you could draw that out right two lines and then take another line, start at the bottom left corner, make it a diagonal forty five degree angle up. Up and to the right, and that's a picture of the Christian life. It's a progression of holiness, getting better and better all the time. And in that view of the Christian life, um, actually that view looks like every religion, right? You just follow the commandments, and you become more holy over time, a better person over time. But in the Christian single line way is where there's a little cross at the base of the line, or at the base where Jesus starts you off in the Christian life, and then the rest is up to you to become a better Christian over time. So it's all about your performance. And then so achievement-based life and cause-based lives are ways of saying, I don't need Jesus as a savior. I'm going to be my own savior. I'm going to get a life. I'm going to have a great life. I'm going to find meaning in life. And because I achieve these great things, or I live for these great causes. So, and I'm not sure, maybe pleasure fits in there. Maybe pleasure is another, it's because it's an organized way to find meaning in your life to say, I know my life will be worthwhile if I get to these things on my bucket list, experience these things I always wanted to experience. You know, I do these great these things, and I go these places, and it's another way to look at back and say my life was worthwhile because, you know, I did this stuff, and so in that sense, it is still self justification, it's still a functional savior, right? Um, it's not really going up a line of holiness, but it's still finding a savior. You're being your own savior. So, um, anyway, the gospel is totally different, right? The gospel is without drawing the whole line verbally like we sometimes do in the podcast, but the gospel is basically a progression of your awareness. So you, there's an upward sloping line, but it's a progression of not your performance, but your growing awareness of his holiness, how holy he is, and a downward sloping line, which is your growing awareness over time of your own sinfulness, your brokenness, your how sinful you really are. And the gospel, the cross doesn't start you off. The cross fills the gap between those two lines, and the gap between them gets bigger and bigger, over time, not smaller and smaller. Uh, and you, so the cross that fills the gap in the illustration grows and grows and grows because the gospel gets, gets bigger in your life all the time, not smaller, not starting off in the Christian life, but the whole Christian life. So do you see that coming out in this book or the? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Where? So, yeah, I'm not sure I'll do the illustration next week when we talk about it. But I think the gospel comes out after you're doing all these things where he says all this fails, right? Achievement causes pleasure, all fails. Then you get to chapter nine. And I think um, 
you were asking me before if I had a favorite verse in Ecclesiastes. This is, this is probably it. But these verses, hey, let me read it to you. Chapter 9, verse 7. And I'll, I'll start there. Uh, it says, go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Let me, I'll stop there for a second. Um, uh, no, it's worth reading the whole thing. I'll just keep going. That's, that was verse eight. I'll read verse nine. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And then verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. First, I quoted a moment ago. Here's how the gospel plays in there, Greg. When it says in chapter 9, verse 7, go your way, eat your bread and happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, enjoy your life. For God has already approved your works. You have to look at that verse and say, how does that verse, how does, is that above the cloud thinking or below the line, below the cloud thinking? Is, and I have to interpret that verse in light of all the rest of Scripture, which says, how do you how do you get to a place where God has already approved your works? That's the gospel. Yeah. The, the, the way you are going to have all your works approved is the gospel, right? And, and, and you're going to say, if, if, if I give my life to Jesus, give him my heart to him, I've, I've stopped trusting in myself for salvation. I've stopped looking at things like my achievements, the causes I fought for to justify my life. I put my trust in him, right? Then God has, God has approved your works. So this, Greg, is all about the one of the S's of the gospel we talk about, sequence. Sequence. God has already approved your works. And once he has, go ahead and enjoy life. You can enjoy life. It's okay. For God has already approved your works. So right after that, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all, all the days of your fleeting life which he's given you. And then in chapter 10, what about working hard and achievement, right? And fighting for causes, right? Chapter 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Do it with all your might. Do it with all your might. And it's because, God, why? Because God's already approved your works. So if you're in, the, in Christ, in the gospel, in sequence, you can rest because all your works have already been approved. You don't need to earn. You don't need to save yourself by going right fighting for some great cause. It's too hard. You don't need to work so you you can rest from that. You don't have to work so hard to achieve incredible things to say my life was worthwhile. Go your way. God's already approved your works. Now, if you read that old verse out on its own, like I said, you pull it out. You say, so like every human being on earth, this God's approved their works. No, that's universal salvation. That's not what the rest of the Bible teaches. Right. Right. They're not all sons of God. We're not all children of God. We're children of God who've put our trust in his name, right? Yeah. So, but once he once he has approved you, God has already approved your works. Eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. So that's one place the gospel shows up. There's another one. Where's that? Chapter 12? Yeah, it's the conclusion, right. And um, uh, uh, one of Keller's sermons on Ecclesiastes is called The Problem of Ethics. And he really, really pulls this out in that sermon. And he says, is the verse is uh, chapter 12, verse 13. Do you have it there so you can read it, by the way? Yeah. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. 
fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Right. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And what Keller pulls out is that he said he doesn't stop there and say, here's the conclusion, keep the commandments. Be a moral person, be a good person. He says, and if you read it that way, you'll miss it. He says, yeah, fear God. And keep his commandments. And what he pulls out, he says, theologically, there's two ways fear is used in the Bible. One way is when you your fear of harm, which is, you know, cowering in fear, which is very self-centered. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. The other way he said is more often used in the Bible is fear is awe and wonder. You probably study this too theologically, right? That the notion of what does it mean to fear the Lord? Yep. Right? Yeah, it doesn't mean to be afraid of him. Right. It means to be in awe of him. But all in all of his pet. Yeah. And if you're in awe of him, it changes your life. It's being you you're changed. You you've Absolutely. been changed. He's changed you. And that's the uh for us on this side of the cross. I mean, the if you really understand the gospel, it changes you. Yes, because you're in awe, not just of his power, how he could crush you like a bug. But <laughs> You know, you're in awe of his grace. You're in awe right. of his love. Why would he love a sinner like me? It's amazing grace, right? So I'm in awestruck by that. I'm just, and, it, and then it's not a, it's not a self-centered fear. Oh, no, what could happen to me? It's like a, it's an other sense. It's a God-centered fear because I'm thinking about him, what he's done. And in yeah. response to that, keep his commandments. It's Again, it's the sequence of the gospel, right? I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Yeah. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, "May I never boast except in the cross of the of of Christ." Right. And the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Power of God. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's really that's really cool. Well, make sure you bring that out in your teaching. Well, I hope so. I hope that that fear of God thing, because I do think there's a couple of verses like that in here. And that comes a lot in Proverbs too. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It sounds like I should cower in fear of, you know, God is about to punish me. And um, it's really actually in that sermon, Greg, Keller spends like 15 or 20 minutes really teasing this point out. I'll cover it really quickly. I think it's because I think it's really significant in the conclusion. Um, but it's so important to get, I fear God and keep his commandments, right? Yeah. So. Well, is there anything else you want to mention? Uh, you want to talk about money is the answer to everything? Oh, yeah, money. Money. There's <laughs> a lot about money in this, and you're sure. a banker. That's right. That's right. So That's right. are you convicted by these verses about money? or? Well, always. I'm trying. I, I think it's, it's, it wasn't a matter of conviction. giving your, your life to money. You're, 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 <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, preacher. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there are some interesting <laughs> verses here, like chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Ah. Wealth is never satisfied with his income. Right. Um, the, and then verse 12, the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. And then verse 15, naked a man comes from his mother's womb and naked. And, and as he comes, so he just departs he takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his uh, in his hand right uh, right there's a lot of a lot of uh interesting verses about 
about money. What what do you think about just what are your thoughts about just like the biblical view of money? Well, first, what you tell the story of Rockefeller? What, what's that phrase he has about how much well, is yeah, it? Yeah, well, they, there's that story of Rockefeller that somebody asked him one one time after he had, you know, created so much wealth that he, you know, wouldn't didn't have a care in the world. Like, how much more do you need? And he just said, "What I've heard, what I remember is like just just a little bit more." Mm-hmm. just a little bit more and i and i don't know if he said like you know if he said a dollar amount or if he said just a little bit more but and there's a verse in here that says whoever has money never has money enough yeah i was trying to find that one it's in this it's in ecclesiastes yeah it's oh, like a, just so, a little more yeah but the, um yeah so here's this just thoughts on money and I, I think I might share this. If not, I can start with you now. We can always do in the, the debrief later. But um, like the verse 10, verse 19 is the one that says money is the, the answer to everything. Do you have that? Do you have it up? 10, 10 verse 19. And I, I, this is the one. So what I'm going to probably br- talk about this this way. First, first of all, is, is the professor's disillusionment with life. What that says. Then the way he tries to find meaning in three things that don't work. Achievement causes and pleasure. And then secondly, the professor's wisdom, just because a lot of this book is just about sayings and his wisdom. And then the professor's conclusion. <clears throat> the very end. We've already talked about the conclusion. But this is part of the wisdom, right? So um, read 10 verse 19. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. And that's in the Bible. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy. As I'd be real crazy and say, this is, why is this in the Bible? Does it make any sense? Yeah. Money is the answer to everything. What do you think? What do you think it means? Um the way I would my first thought on this is that, you know, that's again the perspective of somebody without God. Right. This is this is a perspective of you could almost hear somebody saying this. Oh, all the time. Um, yeah. Hey, you know, we we have parties so we can laugh, and we have wine so we can, you know, be merry and forget about our problems. And yep. but money's the answer for everything. Money's the answer uh, for everything. Uh, if you know, you can hear. So to me, it's like a perspective of somebody um, apart from God. But am I wrong? partly so i'll tell you that first of all the way um and you can coach me and tell me i'll tell you this for the podcast you tell me for the uh talk because i want to like say the the way it it sounds like a new yorker's approach to money okay that's the way a new york artist would say absolutely if you said that to a new yorker they would say money is the answer to everything everything does boil down to money if you look at it like you look at a beautiful building that's that building is a machine that makes the land pay. You look at a, cro- a field of crops that's that is grown not because it's a pretty crop; it's a cat. It's grown for cash, right? You're some farmers doing it so they can pay the debt on the field and get enough money to buy seed for next year. And everything boils down to money. Everything's economics. Um, the uh, the one of my favorite movies called Margin Call. It's about you know Wall Street and 
And um, there's a scene in there where two guys go, uh, to, they're sent to go find somebody. And they say, you'll find him in this strip club. And they go to this strip club and they're in there and they're looking at this dancer right in front of them. And they don't actually show her the movie, thankfully, but the, the, they don't show the, the woman. But she's dancing and, they, and they, they, the, the guys look at each other and they say, how much do you think she makes? What do you think she pulls down a night? I bet she makes $1,500 a night. $1,500 if she right dances to That's not a bit. They start talking about the money she makes. And they're not attracted to her. They're not engaged in that. They're not uh, wowed by it. They're just boiling it all down to money. And it's such a perfect moment in the film because it ca- captures the New York feel perfectly. Everything's just about money. So is it possible that Solomon is speaking here in the voice of an unwise king? Actually, I think he's speaking in the voice of a wise king. Okay. So go back and read the context around it, and I'll kind of tell you what the commentaries say. It's not. It's actually not that mysterious at all. You want you want me to read it out loud? Yeah, read it out loud. Start at verse seventeen. Verse go through twenty. Okay. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at the proper time, for strength, and not for drunkenness. If a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom. Because a bird in the air may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you say. He's talking about kingship. He's talking about running a kingdom. He starts out by saying, blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility. You princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. And then the verse 18 says, uh, talks about things falling apart. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Talk about bad leadership. Yeah. There's a uh, sleep at the post, and there the whole kingdom starts. Everything starts falling apart. And in 19, there's a verse that really troubles people. You know, men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry, and money's the answer to everything. He's talking about those bad kings. That's the way bad kings run their kingdom. They just sit around and eat. It's like you read right with the verse right before it, where like through through indolence the rafters sag, through slackness the house leaks. The whole thing falls apart because they're sitting around eating in eating and drinking. You know, and they're living to and and living for money. And money's the answer to everything. That's what that's a, it, it's talking about what bad kings do. And goes because verse 20 goes right back to talking about kingship. And your furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. Right? Uh, yeah. If you pull yeah. 19 out of context completely, you say, wait a second. He says money's the answer to everything. What he's talking about is how to run a kingdom. Yeah. Right. No, that makes that that's definitely I think yeah, that that's definitely true right there. Yeah. So once I and the commentaries pull that out, they say he's just He's when he says it's the bad kings who say money's the answer to everything. He's trying to give you an example of how not to run a kingdom. So it's actually not that difficult. That's cool. Yeah. Are you going to bring that out? I think so. I think so. It'll give me a chance to talk about the New York approach to money. So, um, which is kind of fun. I think this has been a good, a good discussion. I'm excited to have you teach on it. And we didn't cover Song of Solomon. Do you want to say anything about Song of Solomon? Well, just in, in like two or three minutes, Song of Solomon is interesting because it's love poetry. And there's some uh, kind of, you know, it's, you know, very, uh, very, very intense. And there's some graphical image there. I've, I've heard that the Hebrew actually brings out the sexuality more than the English does, because usually English translators don't bring all that out. 
And when I when I started studying it, Greg, to get ready to talk on it, basically I found it was kind of startled to learn there's two very strong points of view on Song of Solomon. One is that it is absolutely literal. Yeah, it, it all it is is a love story between a boy and a girl. And I uh, I think in this case you probably say boy and girl instead of man and woman because they're young. Um, but it's a, just a love story, and it's there to be a love story in the Bible about. Uh, male-female attraction, and it's the lesson maybe is that it's okay to be have romantic attraction, and that sexuality is not bad. That's all. It, that's all it means, and you should take it very literally. That's all it means. And the other point of view is allegorical, and saying it's really there in the Bible to talk about God's love for His people. So, and actually, in Jewish tradition, that's always been the way they've looked at it. It's all about the God's love for the Jewish people, for His for His people. And generally in Christian tradition, uh, I think I, I've heard that, and I'm not sure I bring this out in the talk or not, but in Catholic tradition, it's, it's Mary is often brought into it. Um, but I'm not Catholic, and I really can't speak to the Catholic tradition with any authority, so maybe I'll leave that out. But the um, Protestant view has always been very much that it's about Christ and the church, very allegorical. But in studying this, Greg, I found a very interesting distinction was that uh, in the Protestant Reformation, Luther liked to look at things like this in the Bible very allegorically. Calvin did not. Oh, wow. Calvin looked at, no, he did hated allegorical interpretations of Scripture, said that somehow that took away from, like, I think it's because he thought it took away from the authority of Scripture. You're just making it, you're, al al you know, analogizing to all this other stuff. And that's not what it says. It just says, you know, girl meets boy, girl falls in love with boy, boy meets girl. That's what it, that's all it is. That's all it means. And I don't know if Calvin actually said that kind of commentary about Song of Songs, but that's the more literal way that he was advocating. Like, and I think so. So I think some Protestant traditions that come more out of the Calvinist tradition, like say the Baptist tradition, other yeah. ones have more of that view to say, and, and when I studied this, there were lots of strong literalists. I thought, I thought the pretty universal view was that this is about Christ and the church and about, right love affair God has for us. But there are lots of strong people like John MacArthur said, absolutely not. Literalville. This is literal. That's all it is. And in our in our Bible study, the speaker who just spoke before me, he mentioned that last week, last Saturday morning, yesterday, that it's all it is is literal. That's just it's just a little love poem that happens to be the Bible and we should take it for on face value for what it is. With the feeling that to do anything more is somehow to not hold scripture in high regard to look yeah. for out for allegories. Like it's you're going down a slippery slope, and all of a sudden, the story of Jonah is not literal, and it's yeah, and like creation maybe not literal, and yeah, you're right. Yeah, right, right, and so they don't like that. No, I don't have a problem with it being allegorical. Well, um, so you think about, um, I got, I should, I got to get chapter and verse. Where is it? Is it Paul or is it no? The you know, it's in Hebrews. They start talking about Hagar and Sarah, and one corresponds to Jerusalem, and one's the people of the the Jewish nation. One corresponds to, in other words, within the New Testament, there's Old Testament reading, reading of the Old Testament in an allegorical way. Yeah. So legitimizing the notion that it's okay to look at it allegorically, like what is the meaning? Maybe on the face it does mean those things, but what is the meaning under it? But the, the, the tension here was very interesting. A lot of commentators were feisty against the allegorical way. Like, no, 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 don't read anything more than Song of Songs. It's just about romantic love and sex, and that's it. 
Um, okay, well, there's some good lessons there. Like, and by the way, here's a, here's one big lesson. If it is literalville, the notion of that romantic love should be between like man, like husband and wife, is really recent in human history. And I'm not. You can Google this. I'm not making this up. But people say the notion that romantic love is associated with marriage is only a couple hundred years old. For thousands of years, people are like, well, you you get you do arranged marriages for, for to build up your family, to build up your kingdom, to for business purposes. Basically, you might have romantic feelings, but it had nothing to do with who you were married to. And so oh. you might say, from thousands of years ago, God was saying, "I want romantic love to exist between husband and wife. I like that, and that's where the romantic love is supposed to be, and that marriage, that relationship." is supposed to be a romantic one. But for thousands of years, really up until the last couple hundred years, people did not associate romantic love with marriage. Like it's and it's not me. Secular literature, there's tons of articles talking about this. I actually remember hearing that in grad school, people talking about that. And I just tried to, you know, just recently Googled it to make sure I remember that right. And there's lots of articles talking about that. It's like, yep, yep, no, romantic love is not. Not not associated with marriage until recently. So maybe that is one good literal interpretation that comes out of it. Hey, you know, you should be romantically attracted. And it ties in with the song of the size of Ecclesiastes verse. It says, enjoy life with the woman who you love all these days of your life. And then there's a verse in Proverbs more explicitly says, enjoy life with the wife of your youth. Right. So um, you should be romantically in love with your spouse. And okay, that's a good literal interpretation. But I think the allegorical one is deeper. And I, I personally believe like it really is. The reason there's a love story in the middle of the Bible is because the whole Bible is all about his love story. Yes. Right? It's the all whole, about Jesus. That's right. And this this is like kind of in the middle of the Bible because of that, right? The whole thing is a love story where he he had us and he lost us. Yeah. He had to die to get his bridegroom back. Right? It's a, The whole thing's a love story. That's, I think that's why Song of Songs is there. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.